Room 14 at the Glenforsa Hotel on the Scottish Isle of Mull has a sordid history. In 1972, Prince William of Gloucester stayed there shortly before he died in an airplane crash. Three years later, Leslie Butler, another guest staying in Room 14, died in an aviation disaster. Shortly after, on December 24, 1975, hobbyist pilot Peter Gibbs slept in the room before taking off in a rental airplane and disappearing into the night. This string of tragedies has given birth to a legend. Room 14 is cursed. Now, a curse could explain some of the most baffling details about Gibbs' disappearance. The strange circumstances of his death make more sense if you assume that something supernatural was at play. As we discussed last time, Gibbs' remains were found four months after he and his plane vanished right before a blizzard hit. Given the weather conditions, medical examiners ruled he died of exposure to the elements. But there was nothing to suggest Gibbs actually froze to death. And despite going missing while flying over the Atlantic Ocean, his body was found about a mile from shore, with no trace of sea salt on his skin or clothing. Which is why some believe Gibbs didn't crash into the sea, swim to shore, and then succumb to the elements. Maybe the curse led him to a more nefarious ending. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our second episode on the Great Mull Air Mystery. Many officials agree that Peter Gibbs crashed his airplane off the island of Mull on December 24, 1975. Last time, we examined the evidence that suggests Gibbs didn't freeze to death and we discussed how officials failed to locate his body in the days after his disappearance, only for a local shepherd to discover him in an open field four months later. Today we'll question what really happened to Peter Gibbs. We'll weigh in on whether he was murdered mid-flight or if he successfully landed only to be assassinated by IRA hitmen. Then we'll examine the evidence that Gibbs may still be alive today. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. 
Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. Christmas Eve, 1975. It was bitterly cold, but nothing could stop businessman Peter Gibbs from embarking on his bold experiment. Gibbs, inebriated and without his glasses, wanted to land his rented Cessna airplane on an undeveloped and unlit airstrip on the Isle of Mull, hours before a blizzard was set to hit. The plan was reckless. Gibbs died after his ill-fated flight presumably after crashing into the ocean and swimming to shore. But his plane has never been found, and inconsistencies in his autopsy have led some to believe there is more to Gibbs' story than meets the eye. Maybe he didn't die in an accident. Perhaps he was murdered. Gibbs wasn't alone on the Glenforsa airstrip that night. His girlfriend, Felicity Granger, was with him. Gibbs taxied her to the end of the runway so she could set up a pair of flashlights for him to use as guideposts during his descent. But as Granger set up the two flashlights, hotel guests reported something strange. Both lights appeared to be moving independently of each other, as if there were someone else out there helping her. If true, it is odd that Granger didn't mention this other person in later reports. According to an article with the Scottish Daily Mail, Granger left the airstrip after she set up the lights, but before Gibbs took off. The reporter didn't specify why Granger departed or where she went, but she would have known about the third person before she left. She wouldn't necessarily know, however, whether they left the runway before takeoff or whether they boarded the plane. Once airborne, Gibbs would be vulnerable. The tag-along could have done anything they wanted to the pilot. Why anyone would risk their life on such a dangerous flight to murder Gibbs is a mystery, in part because there's no way to confirm that a third person was actually there. And even if there was someone else, we don't have many leads about who it might be but a clue may lie in a robbery that occurred just two days earlier. On December 22, 1975, thieves stole a cache of diamonds from a local shop in Oban, Scotland, just a ferry ride away from the Isle of Mull. Unfortunately, there hasn't been much widespread reporting on the almost 50-year-old crime, so we don't know too much about it. But we do know that Gibbs was in Oban, one day after the heist. So perhaps Gibbs was one of the robbers, and his trip to scout out investment properties in the Scottish Isles was just a cover story. 
when he took off on Christmas Eve, it may have been an attempt to evade authorities. But that story doesn't seem very likely. Granger and Gibbs checked into the Glen Forsa on December 20th. And while they did return to Oban on the 23rd to rent the Cessna airplane, there's no evidence that Gibbs slipped away on the 22nd, the day of the actual diamond theft. And at the very least, someone on Mull likely would have noticed his absence. Furthermore, the ferry from Mull to Oban takes about 45 minutes one way. If Gibbs had robbed a business and then boarded the ferry back to the Glen Forsa, it wouldn't have been wise. With authorities on his trail, he'd have been a sitting duck for the whole journey. A calculating jewel thief would have most likely fled Oban by going further inland or hopped on a plane to leave the country. It's also hard to believe Gibbs would risk returning to the scene of the crime a mere 24 hours after the heist only to rent an airplane. The chances of him getting spotted would have been too high, and a man this unconcerned with capture probably wouldn't defy death the next day by flying into a blizzard. More likely than not, he had nothing to do with the theft. But the crime still could be connected. Some have implied that one of the diamond thieves may have hijacked Gibbs' plane right before he took off. As the story goes, once they were in the air, the robber realized they couldn't let Gibbs live after he'd seen their face. So the crook murdered Gibbs while they were airborne. Or perhaps they waited for Gibbs to safely land at a remote location, then held him hostage. Either way, citizen detectives have speculated that the murderer didn't dump Gibbs' body for weeks or months afterwards. This could explain why search parties failed to locate the pilot for so long. But it's hard to imagine why the thief would return to Mull to drop off Gibbs' corpse. It would be much easier to throw his remains into the ocean or to bury them wherever they took the plane. Not to mention, so much of this explanation hinges on unsupported speculation. For starters, it's not even clear whether the Oban Diamond heist actually happened. There isn't much news coverage on the break-in, and every reference we've found tries to link it with Peter Gibbs. So it's possible the robbery was invented after Gibbs' disappearance to try and explain what happened to him. Even if the break-in was real, though, there's nothing to suggest that Gibbs had anything to do with it. Nor do we have any reason to believe the thieves would have fled to Mull or seized control of Gibbs' plane. And there's no discernible motive for them to kill a visiting businessman. Furthermore, this scenario doesn't explain how Gibbs was murdered. After his body was found, medical examiners didn't identify any injuries other than a small cut on his leg. It's unlikely that a panicking jewel thief had the skills and knowledge to murder a man without leaving a trace. That would take a professional hitman. Which is why some believe a member of a notorious paramilitary group killed Gibbs, the IRA. Coming up, dark stories of infiltrating the IRA. Pinocchio. Sleeping Beauty, The Little Mermaid. 
They're all iconic Disney movies. But did you know the original versions of these stories did not end with a happily ever after? Hi, I'm Alastair from Parcast, and I'm hosting a new Spotify original called Once Upon a Time. For nine weeks, we're commemorating the 120th anniversary of original Imagineer Walt Disney's birth by lifting the curtain and comparing some of your favorite Disney stories with their earliest tellings. Once Upon a Time will chart Disney's career triumphs, as well as the crushing defeats that almost ruined it all. We'll also look at what it took to bring these stories to life and why Disney's adapted versions became so memorable across generations. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Once Upon a Time. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. Now back to the story. On the evening of December 24, 1975, Felicity Granger placed lights on the runway at Mull Island's Glen Forsa Hotel. But witness reports suggest there may have been another person present on the airstrip at takeoff, spawning rumors that Peter Gibbs may have been murdered. As for who or why, some point to Gibbs' role in an Irish conflict known as the Troubles. But before we dive into Gibbs' possible personal involvement, it's helpful to get a little historical context. Officially, the Troubles lasted from the 1960s until 1998, but the civil unrest stemmed from tensions that arose much earlier. In 1541, Great Britain officially conquered Ireland. Shortly after, Brits started migrating to Ireland even as the Irish tried and failed to resist British Protestant rule. Systemic religious discrimination meant the British Protestants held most of the financial, political, and social power. After centuries of restlessness, Irish nationalists secured a victory in the 1920s when the Crown divided Ireland into two. Southern Ireland was free to self-govern, while the North, which had a large number of Protestant English settlers, remained under British control. But there was one big problem with this plan. Northern Ireland still had a lot of Irish Catholic residents. About 40% of the population was Irish, and many of them wanted the same freedom and independence their southern neighbors had secured. 
For half a century, Irish activists fought British rule with every tool and tactic in their arsenal. Some staged peaceful protests, but other militant groups sprang up to agitate for their freedom. In August 1969, a pro-Protestant parade marched through Derry, Ireland. They passed through a predominantly Catholic neighborhood called Bogside. The demonstrators hurled insults and pennies at the Irish residents for their perceived poverty. The Irish Catholics countered by tossing small rocks and slinging marbles. Eventually, fistfights broke out that descended into two days of chaos and rioting until the Crown called in the army to restore order. The violent outburst became known as the Battle of Bogside. It marked the beginning of the Troubles, in which Irish agitators began fighting for their independence, often violently. They used threats, murder, and terrorist acts to intimidate the English or anyone who sided with them. In December 1969, four months after the Battle of Bogside, a group called the Provisional Irish Republican Army, or the IRA, formed. Their goal? To expel their British overlords by any means necessary. They planted car bombs, assassinated government officials, and waged an open war against their perceived enemies. Over the course of the Troubles, they were responsible for roughly 1,800 deaths. The Crown didn't know how to handle the IRA. Going to war with the paramilitary group would be bad PR. The group's violent tactics weren't popular, even among the Irish. But many still sympathized with the IRA's rallying cry for independence. The British authorities feared that if they treated the IRA like enemies, they could alienate moderates and drive them toward extremism. So instead, English officials treated the IRA like a criminal organization. Rather than face off on the battlefield, the English government dispatched double agents to infiltrate the nationalists. A similar strategy proved effective against the mafia in the United States. The Crown hoped it would help them destabilize the IRA. One of the most famous anti-IRA spies was Freddy Scapatici, codename Steakknife. Scapatici joined the IRA as a teenager, but he grew bitter when the rebellion didn't appear to value Irish lives any more than the British. They were all too willing to send young, naive recruits on suicide missions. And he became outraged by how some IRA leaders lived a life of luxury from the money they collected on behalf of the group. To him, it seemed like the higher-ups were more interested in gratifying their own desires than a revolution. Scapatici questioned those leaders, but his outcry was met with a brutal public beating from the IRA. While Scapatici recovered, British officials saw an opportunity. Scapatici was in a unique position. He was thoroughly embedded in the IRA and had their trust, but was becoming disillusioned with the movements. So they recruited Steakknife to work as a double agent. From that point on, Scapatici became one of the Crown's most effective spies. Beginning around 1978, 
The 32-year-old started ferrying secret IRA information to British intelligence officials. He told them about upcoming terrorist plots and assassination attempts. His colleagues in the IRA suspected someone was leaking their secrets. But ironically, they trusted Scapatici so much, they appointed him to the so-called Nutting Squad, a group that sniffed out double agents and eliminated them. So when they asked to identify the moles, Scapatici went after other IRA members to protect himself. Some intelligence reports suggest that he personally murdered up to 40 Irish militants, blaming them for his leaks. These weren't the only people who took the fall for Scapatici. On multiple occasions, steak knife's handlers allowed other British spies to die rather than risk exposing him as a double agent. For example, in 1988, the IRA identified Joe Fenton as an informant for the British authorities. This was a huge development. Fenton really was an English sympathizer. So when Scapatici realized he was supposed to silence a fellow double agent, he contacted his handlers for advice. And they chose to do nothing. If Scapatici helped Fenton, it could blow his own cover. And his handlers thought Scapatici was more valuable undercover than Fenton was alive. They didn't even bother to let Fenton know that he'd been exposed. They didn't give him a chance to escape. On February 26, 1989, IRA agents fatally shot Fenton. And Scapatici remained safely embedded within the paramilitary movement. In other words, these agents were just pawns in a game of chess against the Irish militants. Even when the authorities knew an informant was in danger, they sometimes willingly sent the spy to their inevitable death. And this may be exactly why Peter Gibbs died. Gibbs' biography feels like what you'd expect from a British secret agent. In the 1940s, he served in the Royal Air Force, flying with an anti-bomb squadron. Afterward, he became a renowned concert violinist. Gibbs played for the famous conductor, Herbert von Karajan, and led the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra. He frequently clashed with his employers, but that didn't prevent him from booking job after job. People loved Gibbs' music. His career as a violinist gave Gibbs the perfect cover to travel the world without raising any eyebrows. He could have easily run secret ops between shows in different countries, including England, the United States, and Northern Ireland. After leaving music, Gibbs landed a job with a property management company. This provided him with another opportunity to travel the world. His alibi about scouting out new properties would also explain why Gibbs was so willing to attempt an unlit nighttime flight on Christmas Eve, 1975. As we discussed last time, Gibbs said he saw the runway as a lucrative feature for an investment property and hoped it would attract customers. But first, he had to prove it was safe to land on the Isle of Mull at any hour. Maybe his claim about bringing in guests was a cover, and in reality, Gibbs received word that he needed to run a last-minute mission. So he made up an excuse to fly the plane. 
This might mean Gibbs never crashed his Cessna at all. Perhaps he landed in Ireland for a mission only to be captured by IRA forces. And, like double agent Joe Fenton, Gibbs was as good as dead once he was apprehended. The IRA could have held Gibbs hostage and tortured him for information for months. Even if he spilled all his secrets, eventually he would have run out of intel and become useless to his captors. Once they determined he had nothing to offer and killed him, his corpse would serve as a warning to any future agents trying to infiltrate their movement. Plus, it's reasonable to assume that an organization like the IRA would know how to kill someone without leaving a mark on them. This would also explain why it took four months to discover Gibbs' corpse. Maybe he wasn't even on the island while officials searched for his body. It could even account for why no one has located Gibbs' plane. Investigators have all been looking for a wreck near Mull. But if this theory is true, Irish operatives would have disassembled the vehicle in a different, unknown location. The problem is, again, there's no hard evidence to support any of this. Gibbs very well could have been exactly who he appeared to be, a former military pilot and violinist-turned-businessman. Even if Gibbs was a British spy, he wasn't ideal to infiltrate the IRA. As we mentioned earlier, British officials recruited Freddy Scapatici because he was already embedded with the nationalist movement. The IRA leaders already trusted him. By contrast, Gibbs wasn't affiliated with the IRA at all. He wasn't even Irish. Furthermore, Gibbs' death wasn't consistent with known IRA killings. Joe Fenton was shot in the head and back, and nobody tried to hide the fact that Fenton was murdered. Gibbs showed no marks of being shot or killed. The autopsy also confirmed that there was no trace of poison or any other toxin in Gibbs' system. Not to mention, even if Gibbs was an unlikely double agent embedded within the IRA, we'd most likely have heard about it by now. We know Scapatici's identity because it was released following a 2016 investigation called Operation Canova. Investigators, including a former police constable and multiple forensic teams, examined all the people who died to protect Scapatici's cover. They wanted to determine if British officials behaved illegally or unethically. During the investigation, Peter Gibbs' name never came up. And today, there's no reason for the UK to hide any involvement he may have had with their anti-IRA operations. So we can take the government's silence as evidence that Gibbs didn't infiltrate the IRA. Which brings us back to the original mystery. Who killed him? Or maybe that's not the right question to ask. Some believe that Gibbs wasn't murdered. In fact, they suggest that he didn't even die in an aviation accident. Perhaps the Great Mull Air Mystery is actually about Gibbs' extreme plot to fake his own death. Coming up, Gibbs escapes his bad debts. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Now back to the story. On December 24, 1975, Peter Gibbs took off from the Glenforsa airstrip. When his body turned up four months later without any sign of the plane, people speculated about what killed him. Some have proposed he was murdered at the hands of an anonymous killer or an IRA agent, but others believe there's a chance he actually faked his own death. Amateur sleuths, including John McLeod of the Scottish Daily Mail, have suggested Gibbs planned his disappearance in advance. The gist of the story goes like this. Gibbs was deeply in debt following some unspecified failed business venture. He realized he'd never be able to pay off his creditors, so he decided to vanish from Mull. All he needed was a secret conspirator. This collaborator, whom we'll call Angus for simplicity, met Gibbs on the runway at the Glenforsa. While Felicity Granger placed one flashlight, Angus set up the other and then boarded the Cessna plane. The witnesses who watched the takeoff from the hotel testified that the aircraft idled with its engines running for several minutes before its departure. This isn't necessary or common practice when flying Cessna planes. According to the rumor that he faked his own death, this gave Gibbs time to climb out of the cockpit before Angus got situated back in the pilot's seat. After exiting the plane, Gibbs waited for Granger to get away from the runway so she wouldn't learn of his plan and give him away later. When it finally took off, Angus, not Gibbs, was at the wheel. He flew the vehicle to a remote location where it was disassembled and destroyed. This would explain why the missing plane has never been found. And while Angus handled the aircraft, Gibbs was free to begin a new life with an assumed identity. Unfortunately, in this story, Gibbs failed to finalize one crucial detail of his escape plan, where he'd go after the vehicle departed. Or maybe he had a destination in mind but had to improvise when the crowd of witnesses or the blizzard interfered with his scheme. Either way, he supposedly started walking across Mall, but got caught in the snowstorm and died on the hilltop. This scenario means that Gibbs never crashed and never swam in the ocean. 
It explains why his clothes and skin had no salt on them and how he ended up on land without a single bruise or broken bone. But beyond that, this narrative seems pretty shaky. If Gibbs went to all the effort to find a backup pilot, you'd think he'd have a reasonable escape plan. Likewise, if Gibbs couldn't get away due to the weather or the witnesses, he would have realized this before the plane took off. He had ample time to delay the flight and work out the details. An alternate version of this narrative says that Gibbs flew away and Angus stayed behind and died on the island. In this scenario, Gibbs might still be alive today, living under an assumed name. But this also brings about a lot of questions. If Gibbs always intended to fly away on his own, it's not clear why he'd involve Angus at all. And Angus, whoever he was, certainly wouldn't have agreed to the scheme if he knew he was going to die. Plus, there's no clear reason for Angus to change clothes with Gibbs before wandering across the island. Remember, the body that turned up on the hillside four months later was in Gibbs' clothes. Even though the corpse was badly decomposed, the hotel manager recognized Gibbs' features, and dental records later confirmed his identity. Finally, there's the question of why Granger never told anyone about Angus. She may not have seen the takeoff, but she had to have spotted him while placing the flashlights. His presence would have been too big a detail for her to keep to herself for all these years. It's tempting to think that Gibbs avoided a painful, slow death in the ice and snow. And this account makes for a great story. But ultimately, it seems like just that, a story. The narrative has too many holes for us to believe it. As we discussed last time, the most commonly accepted version of events said that Gibbs crashed into the ocean. Then he swam ashore and wandered right past the road to the Glenforsa. He climbed up a steep hill and froze to death about a mile from the runway. Several aspects of this explanation are unsatisfactory, at least on the surface. In particular, it seems unlikely that Gibbs could escape a violent airplane crash without any injuries, or that he could successfully swim to shore in his boots. Both of these scenarios sound improbable, but they are possible. There's even a logical explanation for why Gibbs went right past the road to the Glenforsa, only to die on a hillside. According to medical examiners, Gibbs could have suffered a concussion in the crash, which left him too disoriented to realize he was walking the wrong way. In this story, he wandered through the dark on a moonless night on an island he wasn't familiar with. Of course, he had trouble navigating in those conditions. That said, you have to consider the lack of salt water on Gibbs' skin and clothes. But this too can be explained. Remember, Gibbs' body turned up nearly four months after his death. During that time, he was outdoors and exposed to the elements. Rain and melting snow could have washed the minerals off his corpse. Gibbs was also buried under snow and ice during the initial search, so it's understandable that the team had trouble spotting him in those conditions. As for his autopsy, 
it's actually very common for hypothermia victims to have no symptoms. Last time, we discussed some common indicators, like spotting in the stomach, frostbite and scratches on their face. But these signs only appear in some cases. Many people who freeze to death never develop any visible symptoms. And that's why it's not unusual for a medical examiner to declare exposure as a cause of death without hard proof, like the mortician did in Gibbs' case. But it's still strange that so many witnesses saw two lights moving independently. This could mean that a third person was on the runway who has yet to be identified. Or the crowd was simply mistaken. They were watching at a distance, which would mean the official explanation is the likeliest. Gibbs crashed in the sea and then died after making his way to land. But this account relies on an almost ridiculous number of coincidences. It suggests Gibbs miraculously escaped a serious collision unscathed. Then, he survived a death-defying swim to shore while fully clothed. He succumbed to an ordinary concussion and the weather. And finally, his body went undiscovered while the rain washed away every trace of his incredible feat. None of these details on their own feel impossible. But when taken as a whole, this account still feels extremely unlikely, especially given the fact that nearly 50 years later, we haven't found his airplane or any hard evidence to back up the narrative. But you could say the same about any possibility. There's no proof that Gibbs was a spy, that he was murdered, or that he faked his death. We opened this episode by talking about an alleged curse on room 14 at the Glenforsa Hotel, where Gibbs and Granger stayed before his disappearance. Once again, there's nothing to back up this narrative. In lieu of any real proof, all we have left is speculation about Gibbs' fate. Which may be why the Great Mull Air Mystery persists to this day. It's one of the most famous incidents in the region's history. The Mull Historical Society even discusses conspiracy theories about Gibbs' disappearance on the Glenforsa Airfield's website. The case has inspired numerous nonfiction books, plus a novel called These Demented Lands by Alan Warner. And amateur sleuths have speculated on Gibbs' fate in BBC podcasts, YouTube videos, and in newspapers. None of these forums has come up with a truly satisfying solution, but people keep discussing it. Questions about Gibbs' strange demise have taken root in the public consciousness. We may never know exactly how Gibbs died, but some part of him will always live on in the Great Mull Air Mystery. Thanks again for tuning in. Beginning Tuesday, January 4th, we'll be trying something new and exciting on Unexplained Mysteries. Instead of examining different mysterious events each week, we'll be investigating the biggest questions about your life, your world, and the powerful forces that shape you as a person for as long as it takes for us to arrive at answers. 
We'll ask, is there a new world order pulling the strings to your life? Our search will take us deep underground as we lift the veil on some of the world's most secret and powerful organizations. Groups that might be shaping your day-to-day -day reality in ways you don't even realize. We can't wait to dive into it with you. Until then, you can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you in the new year with a new world order. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, Sound design by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Angela Jorgensen, with writing assistance by Amber Hurley and Connor Sampson, fact-checking by Cara Mackerlein, and research by Mickey Taylor. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Walt Disney had a gift for storytelling that resonated with audiences. From a puppet who wanted to become a real boy, to a mermaid who yearned to be part of the human world, Disney has developed relatable and unforgettable characters. Hi, it's Alastair from Parcast. Join me for Once Upon a Time, a special collection of Parcast episodes celebrating the original Imagineer himself as well as the origins of Disney's most iconic characters and stories. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast once upon a time and catch new episodes Mondays free and only on Spotify.